We are wrapping up a series today called Full Hearts, and uh, so grab your Bibles, if you will. Go with me to the book of Revelation. That's the last book in your Bible, and we're going to look at starting in chapter 3 here today. And As we're wrapping this series up, I came across this article that I thought was uh, pretty fascinating and very pertinent to what we are talking about, this issue of contentment within our lives. The article was, was entitled, Behind the Ever-Expanding American Dream House. And uh, you just kind of get a little bit of an idea of kind of what we view in that, in that uh, sense, the white picket fence. Margot Adler is the, uh, was the writer of this article, and what she assessed in this was that uh, she went back to 1950, and she took the average size home uh, that many of our grandparents or great-grandparents would have been living in, and, uh, and compared that to the average size home of today. It's pretty fascinating. In 1950, by the way, I was over in the Riverside area, and I came across my grandparents' house not long ago, and, and it's interesting because it, I feel like it matches up pretty well as I recall being in their home. In 1950, the average size house was 983 square feet less than 1,000 square feet here in America. And then within uh, 20-year increments, we kind of see this developing. It's pretty fascinating, okay? By 1970, uh, the average size house went up to 1,500 square feet. Then whenever you get to 1990, it goes up another little more than 500 square feet. It goes up to 2,080 square feet. And then by 2005, not quite 20 years, it goes to 2,349 square feet. And here we are here in 2022. The average size house here in America has experienced 250% growth from what many of our grandparents and great-grandparents would have lived in. The average size home here today is 2,537 square feet. Which is interesting whenever we think about this, especially whenever you take into consideration that the average family size is significantly smaller than what it was back in that time. Uh, and, uh, and so it really this, this article was interesting. Uh, you may wonder what we are doing with nearly three times the amount of space that we have, that many of our grandparents had? Are we, are we even able to fill up these homes with, uh, that have so much space, or do we just have empty rooms that are sitting around? What do you guys think? We have, if you are like me, become very uh, efficient at filling our homes with lots of stuff. In fact, if you were to go into my garage right now, Many of you might experience and say, man, we seem to have this problem like, like we do. Hope and I seem to struggle with this. Where are we going to put this stuff? What are we going to do with all of this stuff that it seems like we continue to accumulate? Even, I'm telling you, we are even intentional in trying to give things away. We really are. We're intentional in, in either giving things away, or, and, and we're not pack rats. We either give things away, sometimes we might sell some things we don't need anymore. Uh, a lot of times we realize stuff is just junk and it needs to go in the trash. But, but like many, we struggle with uh, becoming professional shoppers where every drawer, every closet, every square foot seems to fill up over time. And, and, as, and, and I can see in the pattern of our 30 years of marriage how our homes have gotten a little bit bigger, okay, and how we continue to fill those things up. Now, you would think that we would struggle with this, but here's what's interesting. Many of us struggle with the issue of where to put the stuff. So within the last decade, the self-storage business, the self-storage business has grown 50% just within the last decade, which is, which is really interesting. In fact, we have folks within our, within our church family that own some of these, and they have tapped into that demand. But the supply uh, is not meeting the demand. All you have to do is drive around our area and discover that there are new ones that are going up all over the place. Wouldn't you agree? Right? We can't keep up. We have, we have more stuff that our homes can handle, so we have to have places to put our extra stuff. And uh, it, it got me thinking about a, uh, a, a reality TV show that I got hooked on years ago one summer, and it was this, this series called Storage Wars. Does anybody remember that show, okay? I used to love that show. There was quite characters on there. But what they would do is, uh, they, and it was a binge watcher, okay? They would go in and uh, these different characters that you would see 
would go to a storage facility and they would go to an auction where it, perhaps the unit had been abandoned for whatever reason or somebody couldn't pay or whatever. And they would get an opportunity to look for five minutes on the outside. They couldn't go in and see the stuff. They just had to kind of take their best guess at what was inside there. And then the bidding war would begin. And that's what was fun was to see sometimes they would discover in some of those things that would, there would be some real treasures that sometimes they would find. But it was always probably the best episodes where they would spend a lot of money on something that they found out really was just someone else's junk. And this happened on a regular basis. And uh, it just got me thinking about this. And I don't mean to be overly philosophical in this series, but as we're wrapping this series up and kind of thinking through some of these things and me thinking about my own life and my own family and how we struggle with this, uh, with contentment at certain times, I, I just think that at some point, what we're trying to get at in the root of this series is what is it that is driving us here for this need for more? What is it that's pushing many of us in this direction? Let me be clear, and I've said this a few weeks ago, and I want to reiterate this. It's not wrong to have wealth. It's not wrong to be blessed. It's not wrong to have things. In fact, we said how Paul uh, said to Timothy uh, to teach those in Ephesus that they should even enjoy the good things that God has blessed them with. But he gives them a warning. But do not let those things replace your relationship with God. Don't let the things or the things that have been created replace your relationship with the Creator. And we kind of explored that a few weeks ago. But here is the question that I think as we kind of wrap this series up, we have to ask ourselves this fundamental question. Maybe for us, even as Americans, the question is, when will enough ever really be enough? Because it's evident that it, it seems like it's not as we, many of us, will continue to search and we'll continue to try to fill our hearts with something. Maybe the better question for us here today, who are Christ followers, we love Jesus. When will, when will Jesus be enough for us? Will there come a time where we say, I am satisfied within my soul? Remember, we, we, we've tried to explain contentment where contentment is, is this idea where it's not circumstantial. Contentment is I'm okay where I'm at. It, it wouldn't be bad if I were to buy this or whatever, but here's what I'm saying. I don't have to have that or I don't have to experience that to be happy here. That I actually can be full and, uh, and, and in that abundant relationship with God right here no matter what my circumstances are. That's what we've been trying to learn what we talked about in the first week, if you'll remember, is that for many of us, we have full houses, we have full barns, but there are many of us, in spite of the fact that our barns are full, our houses are full, our storage units are full, our souls are empty. And we see that all over the place. I think some of the things that we see happening in our culture indicates that this is even happening with those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. That it happens, it bleeds over into our lives and that many of us are not any different than those who are in our culture, living in a culture of consumption. But this is how I want to conclude this today. What I want you to know is that we are not alone. What I also want you to know as we look at this passage of Scripture today, I want you to see that we are not the first group of Jesus followers to struggle with finding this balance in this issue of contentment and how we relate to material things and financial prosperity and wealth, that we are not the only ones to have battled with this. But where we should take heed and where we should be wise is, is how we can learn from their struggles. And in fact, maybe make course corrections where necessary. I would say for many of us, it is necessary so I want to give you some context today about a church that was planted in an area called Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3 verse 17, uh, the apostle John, while he was much older, he had been persecuted, he had been exiled to an island called Patmos, and while he was there, he received a revelation from Jesus Christ to give to 
churches, the people of God, where these churches were, uh, specifically seven churches that were in what would be modern day, the modern day Turkey area. I want to show you what Jesus, through the, uh, through the apostle John, what John recorded that Jesus said to him that he gave the message to these people in Laodicea. Here is what we see. He says, these are the words of Jesus to this church, to these people of God. You say, this is your words, church, I am rich. I have everything that I want. I don't need a thing, and you don't realize this. Remember the words of Jesus. You are actually, you are actually wretched, you are miserable, you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. Jesus is speaking right to a group of people who at one point were in love with Jesus Christ, that they were excited about how God had rescued them out of their sin into spiritual freedom and spiritual life. But for some reason, along this journey that where they had experienced some financial prosperity, their hearts, as soon as they began to experience financial stability and they were financially set, they were stable, as soon as that began to happen, and they were financially rich, they became spiritually bankrupt. This is what happened to this group of believers. What do we know about Laodicea? Well, first of all, let me just show you where it relates. Uh, that is modern day, that would be modern day Turkey. You can see where Jerusalem is and Israel. You can see that this was a journey uh, uh, where, where Paul and others had gone and they had planted churches here. And I just want you to kind of see, I've been giving you some of these videos to kind of give you an idea uh, as you look at some of the archaeological digs that have emerged, this area, specifically here in the Lycus River Valley in modern-day Turkey, this is where Laodicea, this is where Ephesus and Sardis and Philadelphia, all of these churches of, of Re the book of Revelation were. And uh, you can see that, uh, that this is the most active archaeological dig in the last 25 years in that specific area. Why do I keep showing you these videos? Because here's what I want you to think as you see this. I want you to see that it's a real place. I want you to see that there were real people that were in those stadiums. I want you to see that there were real people that were walking in those marketplaces. There were real people that were also living in a culture of consumption. I want you to envision yourself walking in that place and just being one of the group of people who are in that church at Laodicea. As you are living in a culture like this, what do we know about the area? It was in the archaeological digs that discovered that the words that Jesus said were actually very accurate because it was an area where there was great prosperity. There was great prosperity that happened there. In that Lycus Valley River, there was, it was about a seven to eight mile wide valley where there were lush orchards and vineyards and crops and, and, and where they were able to prosper because of the climate and the, the area, you would also be able to see, uh, it was beautiful. You'd be able to see snow-capped mountains. You'd be able to see the beautiful valley and this river as it was running through this land. And what do we also know? We know that where Laodicea was located, there were, there were you saw three uh, cities that were kind of in a cluster there together. Heropolis was there to the north. You have Laodicea there in the south. And you have Colossae in the east there, and, and there was a lot of trade that would happen between those. Ephesus was all the way to the west. It was on the port. Laodicea was not a port city, okay? However, it was a, on the major east-west trade route. Those goods that were coming into Ephesus were making their way through Laodicea. And when I was thinking about Laodicea this week... It made me think about this place. I love this place. I love Bucky's. Okay, Laodicea was like a Bucky's. Bucky's, I love it. It makes me smile every time I see the the, the beaver or whatever that is. Okay, um, I especially love it because it has clean bathrooms. Amen. Right, and anything else you want to buy, and it's like Laodicea kind of had everything. They had everything, and people were traveling through. They would stop there. And, and on this major trade route, there was great business that was happening. Now, here are the, the reasons that they gained prosperity and wealth. It was a major banking center. There was a lot of trading of, of, of money and gold. Another part of what drove their economy was that they became prosperous because they had a certain sheep that they were raising in that area that produced this beautiful black wool. They were known for their textile industry there. They got rich off of that. 
uh, as, as it was an exotic kind of, uh, of, of, of wool that they were creating certain garments, which to this day, that area is known for its textile industry, which I think is, is, is interesting. Another reason that they got wealthy in this area was that they had a medical school where they specifically focused on ophthalmology, and they had created, some of the doctors that were there had created an eye salve that was thought cure-all for blindness and uh, any other kind of eye infections or anything having to do with poor eyesight or vision, and people were buying this. And so in the process, they became prosperous. They became independently wealthy, many of them did. And in this independence, just to give you an idea of what these people were like, I think you're going to kind of like it. They were so independent that in 60 AD, when an earthquake destroyed much of that area and wrecked the cities of that area, Nero, who was the emperor of the Roman Empire at that time, offered financial assistance to all of those cities, and the only city to turn him down was Laodicea. They basically said to Nero, thanks, we don't need you, we don't need your money, we got, we've got this on our own. And there's a part of us I know that, as Americans especially, that we appreciate that self-sufficiency. We kind of like that, don't we? Or like that, we, we appreciate the independent spirit. We, we appreciate this to a degree, but, but I want you to understand in context of what we're reading today, why Jesus would say these words to them where he said, you say that you are rich and yet you're actually, you're very poor. You say that you have everything that you want and that you don't need anything, but in reality, what you don't realize is how miserable you really are. You've come to a place of pride so much, here's what we could say, Laodicea was spiritually, they were, excuse me, they were physically and financially stable and independent, but they were spiritually bankrupt. They had all the stuff, but they didn't, their relationship with God somehow went, it went south. They drifted. Remember who this has been written to. It's written to believers. It's written to people who were followers of Jesus. And every time I read this passage, if I will get honest, and I will look at my own life, and I will look at some of the discontentment that I've experienced in my life, I feel this warning sign that's going off within me as I read it that speaks to my soul like the Holy Spirit is saying, let those of you who think that you stand, you better be warned lest you fall. Because the moment that we begin to think that we don't need anybody or anything or whatever, and there's kind of this, there's this pride that begins to emerge within us, here's what, here's what I also have sensed the Lord, I'm talking about the Lord speaking into my own heart, uh, is when there has been a, a prideful attitude that is developed within me, and we all struggle with it. When it has happened within me, there is usually something that follows, and that is a complacency spiritually. There is a, there's an apathetic spiritual kind of thing that follows this. And we may not say this, God, I don't need you, but by our behaviors in many ways we live it. And we kind of model it by the way that we live. Our behaviors show that for many of us there is a spiritual bankruptcy that only Jesus can do something about. I feel like whenever I read this and I look at our culture, I look at my own life, if we will be honest today, what I think we all could agree upon is we are living in the land of Laodicea. Can, can, can we get real about that? We are living in a land where the economy, even though it may be unstable right now, we know that it comes in cycles, we still have to admit that we are one of the most prosperous civilizations that has ever existed where we have more than we need, the big idea that we see in the commonalities of this culture, the big idea that we can take away from this, and this is something for all of us, okay? No matter what your financial status is today, you may be struggling today, you may be doing great today. Comparison to the rest of the world, we've said it over and over again, we're wealthy, we're rich, 
Okay, even, even some of us who are maybe struggling financially, we still have more than most in the world. Here is what the big idea would be. This is a good thing to write down. Wealth is not always friendly to our faith. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that wealth and a relationship with God cannot coexist because they clearly can. <laughs> Many of you have demonstrated that and you've shown that and many of us know what that is like. But the point that I think that Jesus would make, that Paul would make, that Peter would say something about, that John is bringing up through Jesus Christ himself would say that when financial stability grows and we prosper and we experience success, in many cases spiritual decline is often found left in the wake of that. And we have to ask ourselves, why? And here's what we have to know. It doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. It seems that in our human condition, for some reason, when we experience successes or we experience some reason for independence, it seems like in our human condition where we are flawed and we are broken, it seems like in many cases we are most susceptible to a failure and a fall, and we are most susceptible uh, when, when God is the one who has blessed us to say, we don't really need you anymore. We're okay without you. When we read this passage, there ought to be something that makes us kind of think about the fact that this has been recorded for us. I know this was 2,000 years ago, but, but brothers and sisters, this is for us. This is, a, this is a word that we need to understand that there are dangers that come with spiritual pride. There are dangers that come with wealth. There are dangers that come with success and prosperity. And we need to stop thinking that we couldn't possibly make the same mistakes because there's arrogance in that. And there is a fall that will soon come thereafter. What we need to recognize is that we are in many ways just like and we should just own this. The Holy Spirit made it certain that we have these words. But what we have and what we'll see is that we have a Savior that loves us too much to leave us in our complacency and apathy. We have a Savior that actually loves us and will address us whenever there is something that is, that is not correct or right in our lives. But here is what he'll do. He won't just punish. What he will do is, as a good parent, will give correction, will give discipline, will give instruction on how to actually correct the course. What's beautiful about this passage is Jesus doesn't scold them or tell them, you know, uh, that he's done with them. His direction of the conversation, as we will read, is driven by love. And he's going to give them a solution. He's going to give a solution of how to correct their calloused and prideful hearts. We don't want to be a people who have full houses but empty souls. And if we're not careful, we can emerge with a mindset just like them that says, God we got this. God, we don't need you anymore. Here's what we see. I'm going to give you, I'm going to break this into sections just really quickly for you, and then I'm going to give you some applications, some things to think about for yourself. In their prosperity, here's what we see first, is we see they, they had garnered a self-deluded, a self-deluded self-sufficiency. They were self-deluded. They were, they were deluded in the sense of, of, of thinking that they were stable on their own and that they really had no need of others. By the way, in my studies of this, it has just really fostered a real desire to lead our church in the fall through a series where we are going to dig in on the seven churches of the book of Revelation and see what God wants to say to us through those churches there. We'll be looking in chapters 2 and chapter 3. I urge you to go read those today or this week. Here's what you're going to find in those seven churches you're going to find that Jesus, speaking to each of those, gives them a commendation. He commends them for something that they're doing well. He brings correction to them in areas where they're struggling. And he brings encouragement to the ones who are suffering. In all of those churches, he commends all of them except for one. Guess who he does not commend? Laodicea. There is no commendation. He doesn't say, you're doing this really well, you're doing this really well. He doesn't do it. In fact, he's going to point out to them in their self-delusion, what we're going to see is that they have a problem that has emerged among them. What you'll find in those other seven churches is Jesus is going to speak to those churches that are suffering persecution. 
He's going to encourage them to stand fast. He's going to speak to those who are, are in financial hardship to stand fast. He's going to speak to some of them where false teaching has entered in and how some of them have done really well at standing up to false teaching. But he's not going to, he's not going to, Laodicea wasn't dealing with any of those issues. Laodicea was dealing with a whole other problem, not from the outside. They were dealing with a problem from the inside. What he's going to bring up is their arrogance. Do you see how this relates? <laughs> He's going to bring up their pride. <laughs> He's going to bring up the fact that they, they basically are in not only a self-sufficient financial, but that there is a spiritual self-sufficiency that is born out of their success that they have experienced in their, in their world and what that self-sufficiency will most often lead into and what he's going to bring up is this challenge that they face now of complacency, of apathy, of no life within them, no power, going through the motions. Here's what he says. Look at verse 15 as we back up. He says, I, these are the words of Jesus, I know all the things you, what does he say? You do. You're active. You're not lazy. He's not saying you're lazy. What he's saying is I, you are very active in so many different ways. You have a lot of activities on your calendars. Your, your schedules are jam-packed. You're probably going through all the motions of what it looks like to even be religious. You maybe know the spiritual activities of being a Christ father, follower, but here is what he says. I know all of these things about you. I see it. That you are neither, what does he say, church? Hot nor cold. And I wish, Jesus says, I wish you were one or the other. I wish that you were either hot or cold. These people understood the imagery that Jesus was using. He under, they understood this. Whenever this letter was read to them, they understood the hot or cold terminology. Because in that, in that area where these three cities were, Herapolis, which was to the north, was known for its hot springs. The hot water was thought to have medicinal purposes that people would come to and utilize that. And so it was a benefit to people who would come into their city. Now, here's what's interesting. The cold. Many times we have thought, and I've been one of these, that he's saying either you should be hot or you should be spiritually cold in the sense of cold to God. That is not what he's saying. The cold, Colossae was the other city where they were known for cold, refreshing water that would come from the snow melt of the mountains that would come into that. By the time any of the water, either the hot water or the cold water, would get to Laodicea, it would be lukewarm. Really, nothing special about it. Nothing that anybody really thought stood out. And this is what he's saying. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will, and the literal word is this, these are the words of Jesus, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's pretty abrupt, isn't it? What he's saying is the lukewarm nature that you have developed into just kind of this useless water that doesn't really refresh anybody, doesn't really bring any medicinal purposes to anybody. It's nothing really special. The apathy that has grown amongst you is what he is saying. It literally physically makes me sick, especially in comparison to the fact, here's what he's saying, that I gave my life blood for you and there was no complacency or apathy in it. I gave everything for you and yet what he's saying is, yet this is how you live your life as if it didn't matter. And this is what he says, it, it, it sickens me. It, it makes me sick. It, it makes me, it, it, in your self-delusion, in your arrogance, in your pride. Now here's what he says, and we read it a second ago. Here is what you're saying in your spiritual blindness. You say, I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And Jesus is saying, let me just cut right through all of that. Because here, in fact, is what you really are. You just can't see it. You don't realize you are wretched, you're miserable. You're surrounded by stuff, but you're still miserable. You're lonely. 
You're on a search that can't seem to be satisfied. You're poor spiritually, even though you have much financially. You're blind. You can't even see it. And you're naked in your insecurities is what he is saying. He is, he's taking it strong to the hoop and telling them exactly what they needed to hear. It's almost like what he's saying is, I know you are known for your independence and what you told Nero, that's admirable. But it's like you're taking the same mentality with me saying, we don't need you either, Jesus. We don't need you. We've got this. We have been making our way through life and life's problems just fine without you. And Jesus is, he's saying, um, no, you don't have this. And it's clear when I look at the brokenness within you and the brokenness in your culture and the brokenness within the church that what I see is I see a people who are self-deluded and that they don't even realize how spiritually bankrupt and spiritually poor and how spiritually lonely many of them are, even though they're surrounded by stuff, more stuff than they've ever had. And he's, he's calling this out, and this ought to just speak to us. It ought, to, it ought to kind of wake us up in a sense. This is what he's saying is wake up to the reality of where you really are, that wealth is not always a friend to your faith, that in fact if you have it, you'd better be careful because it can easily replace what you think is going to satisfy you, you think it's going to satisfy. And can we just, can we just agree on something today? And we, we did a series earlier in the year on the persecuted church and other parts of the world. Can we just come back to the fact that we as believers here in America, that, that our, the least threat we face here is non-believers or those that are seeking to persecute us. We may get made fun of or called names or whatever, but not like it happens in other places in the world. Would you agree, right? We have freedoms here. The greatest danger to this church in Laodicea, remember they weren't facing persecution like others, the greatest danger to the church in Laodicea and the greatest danger in the American Western church is apathy. It's take it or leave it. It's casual, convenient Christianity. And, and, and this, I mean, I'm just going to lay it out there, okay? Because <laughs> I, I, I'm not saying you people, I'm in the church in America. I'm with, we, we have to stop thinking it's other churches or it's other people in other parts of the country. It will never change until we say, God, how do you want something to change within me? How have I been apathetic or complacent about what you have done for me on the cross? Have I become flippant in my relationship with you to where it doesn't even move me anymore by the sacrifice that you made? And what has happened is that we pastors have enabled, as, as many pastors, I'm just going to say it, we've been narcissistic in our behavior in the sense of thinking that our metric of success is how big of the crowds we can gather instead of how deep of disciples are we developing. And here's what I'm going to tell you. Discipleship, salvation is free. <laughs> Discipleship costs you everything, Christian. Because Jesus said, take your cross up and follow me. What he meant was, be prepared to die to yourself every day. But we as pastors, because our egos are frail and fragile, we are afraid to preach the truth regarding discipleship because here's what we know will happen. People will walk away. Because discipleship is hard. And I'm not going to lie to you. It's hard sometimes. You're going to have to sacrifice. You're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to wake up in some things that are happening in our culture. And it's hard. And I've been just as guilty as, as any in this. And this is what he's saying He's saying you've gotten to a place where you've said, God, you have blessed us so much. But in some place along the journey, you know what? I think we got this. We're okay. 
we don't really need you, I think, the way that we used to need you. And we drift into a spiritual independence where we won't say it, but we live it. Where, where we don't rely upon. It's, it's the exact opposite of the mentality of what Jesus called for and he said would make your lives happy when he was on the Sermon on the Mount, whenever he said things like this. Blessed, Matthew 5, are Blessed is the word happy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who basically who are humble enough to acknowledge you need me. Blessed are those who are meek, right? That's not weak. It's, it's just that you're, you're meek. Blessed are those who forgive. Blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are those, Jesus is saying, think about it. It's everything opposite of what our world will tell you that will make you happy and successful today. It's everything opposite, isn't it? And he says, blessed, happy are you. Your heart will be full when you actually embrace the truth that you need me in your life. And you stop thinking that you don't. So here's what he does. This is a good thing to write down. It's not going to come on the screen, but it was something that just struck me this week. Spiritual independence often turns into spiritual indifference. Spiritual independence often will turn into spiritual indifference where we just don't care. We just sleep. We just, we're not engaged. We don't share our faith. We don't read our Bible. We, 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 we think, you know what I'm saying? It, and I'm saying I'm as guilty as it. It happens to us when we start feeling like we don't need the Lord. So what will God often do with his people? There will be a crisis that he will allow to happen that will bring people back to what? We need you, God. We need you in this country again. We need you in our churches we need you in our families. We're falling apart without you. For some reason, we have a tendency to drift into indifference. But here's what Jesus does, all right? It gets so good because there's so much grace that is attached to it. I want every one of you to hear this today. If you're feeling conviction today, we all should, honestly. But if you're feeling that, don't feel it as condemnation if you're a believer because there is no condemnation for the believer. What you need to experience today is the fact that you have a loving Savior who is coming alongside you, who is saying, I have an invitation and I have a solution to your indifference. I have a way to bring you a full heart again. I have a way to wake you up. So here's what he does. He gives a solution to the delusion. He gives this. He doesn't say, I'm done with you, Laodicean church, American church. We have to believe this. We cannot give up hope for the American church. We have to believe, but here is the way it's going to happen. It has to start with you and you and you and me. You know what I mean? It can't just be, well, the church has got to wake up. No, i got to wake up. And I'm a part of the church. It starts with one. And then it begins to filter over into others. The solution. He doesn't just punish them. He doesn't just say, I'm done with you. No, Jesus never gives up on the indifferent heart. Amen? Look, I want you to think about these ways of financial wealth, the ways they gained it. Look how he addresses each one of them. Remember, banking center, clothing industry, medical ISAF. So I advise you, he says, I'm telling you how to fix this. Buy gold from me. What he means by that is stop putting so much of your effort in the gold that is for this age and start storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In fact, the kind of gold will be the gold that goes through the refiner's fire. And the refiner's fire means you're going to go through difficulty to find it. And he says, gold that has been purified by fire. I want you to say the next part with me. Come on. Then you will be wait a minute, they were already rich, weren't they? Oh, he's saying, let me tell you how to be really rich spiritually. A happy life. Also buy white garments. Remember they had the black ones or whatever. White garments for me, that white garments would be a representation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We'll find those robed in that white as a representation of the purity that Jesus 
imparts to those who will believe in him. You stand positionally, positionally clean, but here's what he's saying. But as you're living this out, let your life be a representation of Christ. Live in righteousness. Be who you say you are so that you will not be ashamed. A lot of us carry ourselves in shame because we know that our actions are not lining up with what we say we believe. And so there's a shame that is attached there. And he's saying, no, live in righteousness. You're righteous. Live that way. You'll not be shamed by your nakedness. Oh, and here's the other part. An ointment for your eyes. He's got a solution to each one of their areas where they think they got it all together. Ointment for your eyes so you'll actually be able to, to see. You can see things for the, what, the way that they really are. Each of these, he covers these, and what he's saying is you've been thinking that each of these things is what makes you secure, it's what makes you stable. The garments you've been wearing you think gives you status. What he's saying is you're going to the wrong things, and there is a word in essence that he is saying, and it is a word that is not preached enough in our, in our churches in America today, and here's in essence the word. Repent. What repent means is to change your mind in such a way that it leads to a change of behavior. It means to come. Here's here's the invitation. You ready? What Jesus is saying to them. You've tried everything else. Here's what he's saying. Come back to me. I have never given up on you. I died for you and you are worth it to me. Come back to me. Think of the times throughout the New Testament. How many times did Jesus say, come to me? Come to me, those of you who are thirsty, I'll give you something to drink where you'll never thirst again. Come to me, those of you who are tired, I'll give you rest. Come to me, those of you who are weary, I'll bring peace into your soul. Come to me, those of you who are searching, I will satisfy your soul. He said it over and over and over again, and he says it again to this church. He doesn't give up on them. He keeps pursuing them in their indifference, and he says, I'm coming to you again. Come to me. I love you. Come to me. There is only one qualification, and here's the qualification for God to be close to a heart. Are you ready? Humility. To say, God, I need you. I need you. Jesus, we need you. I want to I introduce you to a couple. This is a couple, a young couple, um, that I want you to meet, okay? We got that? Yeah, bring, I want you to meet this couple. Um, I know that the husband looks like Al from Home Improvement, okay? <laughs> uh, but this is a young couple, and here's what I want you to know. They're just a few weeks away from when they are going to be getting married and starting a life together uh, growing a family together, trying to fulfill all the things that they believe that God was calling them to do. Man, hope looks young there, wouldn't you say? She still does too, by the way. Um, but this, this young couple um, really had no idea how much they were going to need Jesus. Because as they began their life together, they had no idea the financial hardships that would be attached to that. Um, as they were trying to discover what God had made them to do and what they were going to be with their lives, you know, and vocationally. And, and um, one of them, of the male persuasion, had a discontentment in his heart that led them into enormous debt early on where he thought that those things that he was purchasing that he couldn't really afford... He thought those things were going to bring him happiness and bring happiness into their family and make them feel really happy about things. But what he soon discovered was that it actually didn't fulfill them, but it really it created a lot more stress every time the bill would come in. And this, this young couple would, would go on and they would, they would have kids and, and they realized how much they needed Jesus because they really felt like as they were raising these kids, they had no idea what they were doing. 
and how to do it. They were hoping they were doing a good job. They were hoping they were raising healthy, spiritually, emotionally, physically healthy kids. They needed Jesus. They had regular worship experiences when they would just go out to start their car. They never prayed more than whenever they would go and be like, please, Jesus, please, Jesus. And then it would start, praise Jesus. It would break into a worship service. They realized in those moments how much they needed Jesus. That young couple would also begin to have something that was stirring within their heart as they had deep church wounds. And since that God was leading them to start a new church, but they were so scared because they didn't know what they were doing. They realized they needed Jesus in the process. Now I want to fast forward to another couple that I want to introduce you to. Here's a couple, it's a good looking couple. 30 years later, the wife looks exactly the same. <laughs> But this couple have, has more education, has more experience, was able to work really hard and do some really kind of crazy things to get out of debt, which means they had to sacrifice a lot and drive older cars and do those kinds of things where they finally got to a place where there's more financial stability in their life than they've ever had. In the process, though, that what they discovered was that in their marriage, what they realized was how much they really needed Jesus. Because they learned one thing above everything else over the 30 years that they've been doing life together. What they learned is this, how much they still desperately need Jesus every day. And what this couple would tell you is the moments because there have been plenty of them, where they stopped thinking that that was important in their marriage, in their raising of kids, as they are seeking to lead a church, that they're just frankly surprised that it's doing well because the leader of it is a knucklehead. <laughs> what they would tell you is the moments where they stopped feeling like they needed Jesus were the moments where the wheels came off. But what this couple would also tell you is this. Any time when they would wake up and recognize when the wheels were coming off, that if they would humble themselves and would repent and get on their faces before God and say they were sorry and say that they needed him in their lives, he was always faithful to show up. That's some of the things that they have learned in their 30 years of life. And what they would want to say to you today is if you feel like the wheels are coming off, if you feel like your marriage is falling apart, if you feel like you don't know what you're doing, parenting or in your job or anything, they would just say, welcome to the club. Let's do some life together. And they would say this, it's okay to humble yourself and to say, I need Jesus. Let's finish this up. He, uh, Jesus is going to show the motivation of, their, of him speaking. Look at verse 19. He says, I correct and I discipline everyone that I, come on, what does it say? He's not mean. He loves you so much, he will not just let you stay in your apathy with, without at least saying something to you. To say to you, I got more for you than just what this world has to offer you. This is what he's saying. It's not punishment, it's correction. I want to help you get back on track. Or I want to help you get on the track if you haven't done this. It's an invitation. So here's what he says in verse 19. So be diligent. That word diligent is be zealous again. What it is, is wake up. Spiritually wake up. And turn, there it is, repent from your indifference. Here's what Jesus gives your final point is. He gives an invitation to the heart that has become indifferent. There's this invite. 
He, he, he keeps pursuing. He won't stop. He won't force himself on you, but he, but he keeps loving you in spite of the fact that you haven't loved him in some time. And then he says, verse 20, look, I stand at the door. I'm standing. I'm calling out to you. I'm knocking. I'm not going to force myself on you. If you hear my voice, if you will slow down in all of the noise that is constantly going and for a moment just listen to my voice and open the door, he gives you a promise. I will come in. I will flood into your life. I will fill it up with life again. I will share, in fact, a meal with you, and it, it will be a meal as friends. Do you see that? The God of the universe is inviting you into a friendship meal. This is how they did meals. This is how I'm doing a meal this week when I go to Senegal. They do meals like this. That's how they eat. It's, it's a communal plate. I know we look at that as Americans. I did. I still do. I'm worried about it. Pray for me. Um, but we look at this, and here's what it means. To share a meal means to share life and germs and life, okay? <laughs> but it's life. The intim it's, here's what it is. There's intimacy. This is why Jesus was criticized for having meals with sinners, because he befriended them. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, I want to be close to you. Can you hear him calling to you? Can you hear the knock? And he's saying, I promise you this, if you will open the door, we can be really close friends again. In fact, I'll be the friend to you that you have always needed and wanted in your life. That's what he's saying. It's written to Christians. So first, Christian, how are you doing? Are you, are you, are you apathetic? I know this was convicting for me, but I, I'm grateful to God speaking to me. Some of you, maybe you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. He wants to be in your life. He loves you too, and he wants, he came, he died for you, but he's not going to force himself upon you. Have you trusted him as your Savior? Let's pray together, okay? This morning, as you assess your heart, don't think that this is for someone else. This is for me. This is for you individually. The change happens with an individual. May it start with individuals here, Lord. May it grow into a church that is not lukewarm, but a church that is, that is bringing refreshment through cold water for those who are so thirsty in our culture. May we also bring medicinal type water, that hot water, for those who need, who need spiritual healing. Father, thank you for never giving up on us. Thank you for constantly pursuing us and loving us. Lord, we come to you this morning in humility with a declaration, corporately and individually, Lord Jesus, we need you.